0: Good morning. It's good to uh, be with you here on the Lord's Day and worship our God together. If you would open your Bibles, please, to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to read the last uh, paragraph or last section of Ephesians chapter 4. and We will start in verse 17. This is God's Word. Now, this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we join together as the church this morning to come into your presence. We are reminded of all that you have done to make us your own. That we have been bought with a price and what a price it was, the life of your own Son. We have been brought into the body of Christ We are called the Bride of Christ. What blessings we have, what privileges we have to be called the Bride of Christ, to have been made your very own children. And Father, as we ponder from your Word this morning how you would have us treat one another, we pray that you would do your work by your Spirit in our hearts this morning that we would not just see words on a page, that we would not just hear another sermon out of many that we've heard, but that we would hear from You, that we would recognize these are Your very words meant for us. And we pray that You would bless us in Jesus' name. Amen. We have been looking at uh, various different passages from different books of the Bible throughout uh, the course of this summer, and so each time we come to a new book, each time we come to a new text, I feel a very great obligation to, to fit it in its context and understand what's been going on, and, and uh, suffice to say, in Ephesians, Paul has been talking about the amazing blessings that are ours in Christ, what God has done for us. And, and chapter 1 spells out what those spiritual blessings are, and, and then he uh, works out in chapter 2 and chapter 3 uh, uh, what exactly those spiritual blessings mean in our lives and in the life of the church, <clears throat> how it is that a sinful uh, person can be made, uh, brought into a place of having a right relationship and fellowship with holy God and in the beginning of chapter four, we see that uh, God wasn't finished when He has redeemed sinners and and brought them into uh, relationship with Him. He's not done. That actually He begins to build His church and He gives certain gifts and and has designed the church to work in such a way that when it's functioning properly, it actually builds itself up. That the church is meant to be an organism that that. Uh, um, strengthens itself that functions together with our varied gifts and in our varied roles uh, as we speak the truth and love to one another as we relate to one another we see that the the body of Christ the church is is designed in such a way that when it's functioning in a healthy way, it heals quickly, it gains strength, it actually contributes to the maturity, not just to the overall body, but to the individuals who are involved. And so God has designed the church in an amazing way. And His Spirit is working within the church in, uh, in ways that um, are noteworthy, that are uh, significant, that are obvious to those who have eyes to see that God is at work in the church and we come to our passage today and he begins to address some aspects of life some aspects of sin and of uh, our own uh, relationships with one another that can actually cause problems for uh, that relationship within the church that there is meant to be great unity there's meant to be a great uh, building together and building up of one another and yet there are sometimes and I shouldn't say sometimes it often happens we battle against temptations in our own flesh and in our own situations that would that would endanger that kind of uh, growing healthy body and so he's going to address those here in the remainder of this chapter that we're going to look at today and uh, this is a uh, I'm going to go through the first couple of points here relatively quickly and then uh, spend some time focusing on uh, when he gets to the therefore in verse 25, we know that Paul has a tendency, and we see this often in Scripture, of explaining and teaching these things that are true, these indicatives, these things that are uh, just true facts to help us understand theology, help us understand God, help us understand ourselves, help us understand life. So he's going to teach us some things, and then, as often happens, he, he's going to say, therefore... That means these things for us. Therefore, how ought we to live in light of this body of truth? And this passage is no different from that. So we see right off the bat, he's going to talk about the anatomy of a futile mind. And then he's going to contrast that with our second point here, the anatomy of a renewed mind. And so uh, we start reading there in verse 17 and Having just talked about the church and the, and the glories of how the church works together and builds itself up and functions when it's healthy and, and all of that, and that God is at work in the church that way, he says in verse 17, Now this I say, and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. He's talking to Christians. He's writing to the church in Ephesus, and he's having just spelled out the gospel, having just spelled out how it is that a sinful person can come into a right relationship with God, he says, now, I, I am telling you this, I testify in the Lord, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. There is a difference visible in the life of a Christian. Now, that, that difference wasn't generated to cause the person to become a Christian. That difference in lifestyle comes as a result of being a Christian, that a person becomes a Christian, and we will see that more in detail as we go, but then when they do, they no longer walk as the Gentiles do, the unbelievers around them. There becomes a difference in the life of the Christian in contrast to the life of the unbeliever uh, around them. And so he says, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. By the way, did you see it says no longer? He's recognizing you used to. He's recognizing perhaps in some ways you still do. And that's always the case when we come to God's Word, right? I rarely read about things that, oh yeah, I got that, got that handled, got that dealt with, and now we've moved on, and that's all in the distant past. Right? Sin and temptation have a way of creeping up. Maybe it looks different in my stage in life. Maybe it looks different. But, but he says, uh, you must no longer walk in this way. Not like the Gentiles in the futility of their minds. The futility, it doesn't have an end, it doesn't have a purpose, it doesn't function the way it ought to, it it doesn't accomplish its purpose, it's futile. They're walking in the futility of their minds. He said they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. He said there's a lot going on that causes a, he uses the term "gentile" here, but it's a it's a, a reference to unbelievers. He says there's a reason unbelievers act like unbelievers. They become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And so, as you think about the words that he says here, you think about his description of the futile mind. Where does it have its beginning? What's the cause? It's important for us when we read Scripture that we pay attention to cause and effect. What comes first to bring about something that comes later? And so, what is the cause of this futile mind? He says, we're not supposed to walk like the Gentiles do who walk in the futility of their minds. He says in verse uh, verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding. They're alienated from the life of God, but there's a cause. What's the cause the ignorance that is in them, but there's a cause to the ignorance. He says it's due to their hardness of heart. Now, without going into too great to a detail, I think we can, we can understand the flow of thought here. What is the cause and what is the effect that the hard and callous heart is the root cause? That's the beginning, which doesn't surprise us when we think about The root and the fruit where Jesus talks about you will know them by their fruits, that comes from the root that's deep down. And if there's a healthy root, if there's a healthy tree, there's healthy fruit. And if there's a bad root, and if there's a bad tree, there's bad fruit. The root here is the callous and hard heart that leads to a futile mind. That leads to a person ultimately not thinking correctly, but it's not just about not being able to do math well or something like that, but it's not understanding life as it really is, not really making the connections, not really understanding consequences, not really understanding what is ultimate reality and how we ought to live in light of ultimate reality. And So the the ignorant and futile mind is not the ultimate cause. The ultimate cause is the callous heart. And the ignorant and futile mind is a result of that, but then even that leads to somewhere, doesn't it? He says in verse 19, they've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So there's a hard and callous heart that affects the way the mind thinks and views the world and decisions that are made and values what ought to be uh, devalued. and, And the other way around, there's an ignorance and a futility of mind that leads to sensuality and an an impure life. So you see the results. You see the effect. You see the fruit, don't you? The fruit is the sensuality. The fruit is the impure life. But what's the root? Well, we see it comes from a futile mind, but the root ultimately is this hard and callous heart. That's the anatomy of a a futile mind? What about the anatomy of a renewed mind? Because he continues on and he says in verse 20, but that is not the way you learned Christ, to live like that, to, to have that kind of calloused heart, to, to, to have that kind of futility of mind and thus practice impurity and all of those things. He says, no, that's not the way you learned Christ. These, these Ephesians know, and, and you know, Christian, that's not the way we're to live. There's something very, very different about the Christian, and he's pointing that out to them. He says, that's not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus. He's not really questioning whether they're Christians. He's calling their their minds to the fact that they are Christians. He's calling their minds back to Christ. And that's what we do when we preach, and that's what we do when we read the Bible, We're looking to Christ. He's calling their minds back to that. What is it that Christ has done for us? Well, he says here, assuming that you have heard about him, really the word about is not there. Assuming that you have heard him. There's something different about Christianity. There are a lot of things different about Christianity, but it's not primarily a body of information. It's not not an ethic, but nor is it some kind of intellectual concepts, though there are intellectual concepts and there is an ethic. It's about a person. It's about Christ. And so he says, assuming you have heard him, assuming you have heard Christ, heard his voice, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. See, a lot of people walked around Jesus. A lot of people saw him, and they heard him teach, and thousands at various times heard him teach and, 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 and saw him and all those things, but, but some heard in a different way. My sheep, he says, hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And so he, he says, you Christians, you have heard Jesus. You've not just learned some truths. You've not just encountered some ideas or turned over a new leaf or joined a new club. Christians, you have come to know Christ, your Savior, Jesus Himself. He's pointing out that you, Christian, start from a new place, from a different place. You have heard Him, you were taught in Him. As we grow and as we learn, there are things that we learn. We need to, you know, if you haven't noticed, the Bible's a big book. It takes a long time to read it, and there's a lot to learn in there. But, but we're, not, we're not trying to learn facts that are distant from us. We're not trying to learn some kind of philosophy. We're trying to learn of Him, to be taught of Him. Who is He, and what is He like, and what has He done, and what will He do? And so he's saying of Him, of, of them he's writing to, you've heard him, you were taught in him, as the truth is in him. And so, we point one another to Christ. We continue to think about what it is we have in Jesus. We continue to point, even as we did in Sunday school this morning, as we looked through sections of Romans chapter 8, really Romans 5 through 8, as we looked at, to see Jesus. And we ask the question again and again and again, where is your hope in this context? The hope is Jesus. Where is your hope in this situation? The hope is Jesus. Where is your hope when things are like that? Jesus. And I made a joke at the end that, of course, it's Sunday school, so the answer is always Jesus, right? But the answer is always Jesus. And so we have learned of Him. Why is that? Why is it that Christianity is so taken with a person, an historical figure? Why is it that, that Christianity is built around knowing Christ and not knowing a list, not knowing uh, how, how to say words in a certain order or, or any of that stuff? Why is it about knowing Jesus? Well, it's because of who Jesus is that, that each of us will one day answer to God. Whether we believe in Him or not doesn't matter. We will answer to Him. We will stand before Him on one day and He will perhaps ask us questions about our lives. He will perhaps direct our attention to all of those times when we disregarded Him and what He says. He will will draw our attention to to the times when He's just been ignored, flat disobeyed. He's given us His Ten Commandments, and they're relatively simple to understand. And He's given us commands and and things that we understand in our heart that we know are wrong and things certainly that are written down in His Word that we know are wrong. And there will come a day when everyone will stand before Him and attention will be drawn to those things. And if we were left in that situation, the attention drawn to those things and the judgment that would follow would mean eternal separation from God, would mean eternal separation from anything good, would mean eternal condemnation in hell. Because God, our Creator, deserves our obedience and has not received it again and again and again. And so God could have left that situation like that, but He didn't. He he would have been just and He would have been right to, to leave that sentence of judgment upon us but instead He sent His Son. Jesus, the, the Son of God, God the Son took on flesh and was born as one of us, and, but He lived a life that was obedient where we've not. And then the, the death that we deserve, the punishment, the wrath of God that we deserve because of our sin. And who hasn't sinned? Each of us has. And each sin deserves God's infinite wrath because God is infinitely holy. That's what we deserve. And Jesus, who instead deserved God's full blessing because of His righteous life, having always obeyed God, yet He went to that place to bear the judgment of God for my sin. That Jesus would go to that place that He would take upon Himself the wrath of God for sinners, though He Himself was not a sinner. Who has not sinned? You and I don't make that cut, but Jesus has never sinned. He's holy, and He's righteous. And so He stands in the place bearing the the judgment that you and I deserve, and God punished that judgment fully, dumping out His wrath on Jesus for all of my sin. He bore it fully, and He died under it. And then in three days, God raised Him from the dead, indicating that the payment was made in full. It was acceptable to Him that though sin had been placed on Christ and punished in Him, it was there no more. It had been fully paid for. And so Jesus was raised from the dead and He ascended to be with the Father again. And the Bible tells us that if we will but look to Christ, away from ourselves, away from our own accomplishment, away from our own goodness, away from any other gods or any other idols, looking away from trusting in anything else for for life If we will look to Christ alone and put our trust in Him, our sins are forgiven and His righteousness is credited to us. And we will become a child of God. We we enter and become a part of the bride of Christ. That we get to have peace with God and know Him forever. That's why Christianity is about Jesus. And so Paul is saying of of these people that you've heard Christ and you have learned of Christ. The truth is found in Christ. And so there is a difference. There is to be a difference that where whereas before with our futile minds we having a hard and callous heart that led to an ignorant and futile mind resulting in sensual impure lifestyle that we see all around us now there's something new about us in Christ instead we have a new and responsive heart that has been given to us not a hard and calloused heart that, that, that is insensitive that is unresponsive to God instead according to Ezekiel 36 and verse 26 we have a new heart given to us a new spirit the heart of stone that was there, which is another concept for the callous heart, unresponsive, has been removed in a heart of flesh, sensitive, been put in its place. And so we have a new and responsive heart, which leads now to a renewed mind, which ultimately is going to lead to obedience that flows right from the heart. Rather than this impure lifestyle, rather than doing the, 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 the things of sensuality and darkness of this world, instead because we have a renewed mind, having been given a new heart, resulting in a renewed mind, there's a renewed life instead of obedience from the heart. So though Christianity is not fundamentally about an ethic, it certainly comes with an ethic and all throughout here, Paul is going to use the language of, of changing clothes, putting off and putting on. Uh, he, he uses that language in a couple of other places, but, but it's going to have particular significance here. He, he says in verse 22, this is what you've learned, by the way. This is what he says, you've learned to put off your old self. Put off your old self, you who functioned according to the futile mind of the previous paragraph. You've put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. You've put it off. You've been, learned, you've, you've been taught to do that. Having been taught to do that, he's going to say some other things as well. But putting off our old self is not a once-for-all thing, is it? I wish it were so easy that when I got baptized... That that, that was done. I was done with that phase of my life. I've now moved on to something new. Yes, I was baptized. And being baptized is a one and done thing for the Christian. But the putting off the old self, that comes up again and again. Because I keep going back to it. I keep trying to put it back on. Temptations and the world and old habits and and, uh, my selfish nature and all that kind of stuff wants to go back to that old way of life, we are to put off our old self. We are to be aware that those deceitful desires are still present and they are still seeking to deceive. That's why we go back, we listen to the temptation and we, we forget momentarily or we, we la la la, we try not to listen momentarily to the fact that that, that temptation is lying to you. There are consequences to our sin. And it lies to us, does temptation, about that sin. He says we are to put off the old man. And some of you are still giving in to those lies, believing them. We all do in certain ways at certain times. But, but for some people, they're, they're in a place where those lies are so appealing. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're in a place where that, that old temptation that, that, that keeps cropping up, you're, you're believing the lies that it's giving you, that this way lies uh, a, a joy and, and pleasure, and there will be no consequences, and, and, uh, and, and I can just go and pursue this sort of thing. We're, we're being lied to. And folks, we need to recognize that those temptations, those desires... Are lying to us. We need to recognize and put off our old self. We need to uh, next be renewed in our minds. To be renewed, verse 23, in the spirit of your minds. This isn't a once-for-all thing either. This is, I need to be renewed in my mind just as often as I face temptation. I need to be reminded and, and have renewed uh, my mind about what Christ has done for me, just as often as I face temptation in the world, just as often as the enemy would come after me. So how are we renewed in mind? We're renewed in mind when we think about and remind ourselves of what it is Christ has done for us. When we look back to what he has talked about to this point, where you came from when you relied upon your own strength, where you were headed when you relied upon your own wisdom, the result of your futile minds, when he, we we call our attention to that and what remind ourselves of what he has redeemed us from and what he has redeemed us for. I'm reminded of what we read earlier in chapter 2. Flip back to chapter 2 of Ephesians. Familiar passage. But this is what God has done for the Christian. Having talked about The result of their futile minds, and and all of us were living this way, verses 1 through 3. We get to verse 4. God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages... He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He wants to put on display what it is He has done. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We need to remind ourselves of those truths. We need to remind ourselves of what it is He has done for us, what it is He has accomplished, and what it is He has recreated us for. So we renew our minds. We put on the new self. Go back to chapter 4. Now he's going to get to the therefore portion. In light of those truths, we could camp on those truths uh, for a long, long time, but it's the conclusions that are compelling. It's the application that he really brings us to. The rest of this paragraph is, is him telling us how to address, how to be wary of the temptations of the enemy that specifically affect our relationship with one another. So remember we started by talking that uh, saying that Ephesians chapter 4 and really all of Ephesians leading up to that point was talking about God building a church. The spirit working in certain ways that he's that he's building the church designed in certain ways to, to function in a way that's, that's healthy and, and contributes to growth and maturity. He says, but there are temptations that, that attack exactly that, the body of Christ. Temptations that exactly go after our relationship with one another as we are to speak the truth in love to one another, and that contributes to the building up. He says, instead, there are temptations that will sneak in, that will cause the destruction, the tearing down of the body of Christ, and we are to be wary of those. And so we read in verse 25. This is the behavior of the renewed mind. Verse 25, Therefore, having put away falsehood, remember we're to speak the truth in love? He says, Put away falsehood. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Speak truthfully, he says. A key aspect of the body of Christ functioning and, and growing the way it ought to and, and contributing strength and life and blessing to the members of the body involves speaking the truth in love. And so he says, put away falsehood. Instead, speak truthfully. Move from that falsehood that's such, a, such an easy uh, path to go down and instead speak the truth. And why is that? It's because we're members of one another. It's because we are dependent upon one another. We have relationship with one another where if we speak a certain way, there will be strength in life and health and growth. Or we can speak another way and the way he's highlighting here is falsehood. And so he says, speak truthfully. Writing to the church. Because we are members of of one another. And so, as a point of application for us, just just a question or two. Am I careful to speak only what is true? Am I careful to speak only what is true? A related question that goes a little bit beyond that. Am I thoughtful of how things I say will affect others around me? Now, that's tough. If if we use a lot of words in our lives, and we do, we need to be speaking truthfully. We need to be conscious of how the words we say will be received and impact people around us. So, first of all, he says, speak truthfully. Secondly, beware anger. Verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Now, First off, it looks like he's commanding us to be angry. Be angry. <laughs> That's not what he's saying. He's say, what he's saying is there is a way, there is a possibility, there is a kind of anger that is, that is righteous. It's possible to be angry and do not sin, but it is not easy and it is not common. I worked at a coffee shop when I was in grad school and we had, uh, it was a lot of fun for a number of uh, reasons and uh, but I loved making coffee and I loved, I loved uh, making lattes and talking with people, and it was a big challenge, it was a lot of fun. But we had a uh, they have new, you know, newer uh, automatic espresso makers that are supposed to make it perfectly every time, but this was old school, and so we had to you had to take the coffee grounds and you had to put the coffee grounds into I think it was called a group, I don't remember, and you had to tamp it just right. If you tamped it too hard and you put it in to run your espresso, it would be nasty when it came out. It would take like 40 seconds to come out, and it would taste like motor oil, just awful. Nobody wants that. But if you didn't tamp enough and put that in there, then it would, you could read through it, and that's not espresso either, right? And so they had a little clock, a little timer on the machine, and it, if, if we, it would tell you how long it took to pull that shot, we called it. What they were telling us is, where's the sweet spot? There's a right way to do an espresso shot, and there are a lot of wrong ways to do an espresso shot. And if it takes 18 seconds, between 18 and 23 seconds, then it was right. That's what they would tell us. And so we could use it if it took 18 to 23 seconds. And so as a new person who's just learning how to do this, I didn't really know how hard do you push. You know, I'm thinking lean into that thing, you know, and, and really hammer on that, and, and it was just awful. Or, you know, I'd learn my lesson. I'd just tap it a little bit and put it on. And it was hard to get 18 to 23 seconds. Well, then you throw other changes in like the weather. If it was humid outside, that would affect how long your shot would take. Crazy. The temperature outside, temperature inside, just all kinds of stuff. And so you work hard to learn how to make a good shot of espresso, right? And so I rejoiced when I finally learned how to do that. I could consistently make a good shot. But do you know what happens to espresso if you let it sit there? It goes sour. And so what was a good shot of espresso for a few seconds for a certain period of time turns rancid, turns just nasty. It gets sour, and you don't want to drink it. Even I, who can drink some coffee, don't like to drink old shots of espresso. Well, anger is a little bit like espresso, okay? It's possible to pull a good shot of espresso. It's possible for you to be angry without sinning about some righteous cause, about the name of God being, uh, being uh, uh, um, dra- dragged through the mud, or, or, or someone you love having been harmed or threatened. Yes, it's possible to be angry in that situation without sin, that you're just, you're standing up for, or you're responding to a situation where there's injustice, or, or God has been offended, or yes, it's possible. It's possible to pull a good shot of espresso, but what, what happens when you let it sit there? when when you let that anger sit there and what started out perhaps as a legitimate cause for anger turns into bitterness when you let it sit and so paul says here be angry and do not sin yes it's possible now i will say it's exceedingly rare because usually when i'm angry it's because i've been offended it's because uh, of some selfish reason, it's some other motivation, or my angry uh, response is, is that I'm going to do something harmful or whatever. I don't mean physically, I'm not a, I'm not a physical guy, but you see what I mean? It's, it, it's possible, but very rare, to be angry without sinning. But even if you are angry and not in a sinful state, if you let it sit, it turns bitter and You see what Paul says here, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Don't don't let it ride. Don't let it ride. Give no opportunity to the devil. I could talk more about this, but but, uh, suffice to say that it is exceedingly difficult to be angry, for us to be angry without sinning. And when we do, if we let that sit, even that turns sinful. And so, beware anger. And so, just a couple of questions. Do I, do I nurse anger or am I quick to get rid of it? Am I quick to talk to the person? Am I quick to forgive? Am I quick to, to uh, go to the Lord with this? Am I quick to repent where I need to repent? Do I nurse anger or am I quick to get rid of it? Or do I secretly like to be angry? That's some of us. We kind of get used to it. We kind of get used to being angry. We like being in that spot. It, it makes us feel like we're in the right, maybe. It makes us feel powerful to be angry. Like I, I feel weak in this situation, but when I get angry about it, suddenly I feel stronger and more in control. Maybe, maybe that's why we do that. Do I, do I like being angry? Paul would caution us against that. Be careful of your anger. Third question, in my anger... Have I become foolish and unaware of its temptation? Have I become blind to the reality that staying angry opens the door to the accuser of the brethren to begin his insidious work in my heart, to begin his insidious work in my relationship and in my church? Thirdly, verse 28, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need cultivate generosity cultivate generosity notice he doesn't just say hey thief stop stealing period next subject but he wants him to go the other direction it's not enough just to stop stealing he says work with your own hands make enough and take that to other people around you who need it go to the other end of the exp- of the spectrum not just no longer stealing, but providing and being generous. Cultivate generosity. Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. And so a question, am I a taker or a giver in my relationships? Now that could have material application, that could have emotional application, all kinds of other ways, but am I, am I one who takes, takes, takes? Maybe, maybe that's not even mine to take. Or, or am I a, gi- a giver? Am I generous? Secondly, am I one who provides for others? Or am I more often on the lookout for ways to get from others, to receive from others? Cultivate generosity. Fourthly, verse 29 Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace. To those who hear, speak graciously. Speak graciously. How hard is it to control the tongue? Seems like it shouldn't be a big deal, right? Just close your teeth, right? Just control what you say. But, of course, we know it's more difficult than that. James says in chapter 3, The tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. It's so dangerous. It has such strength beyond all size. For every kind of beast and bird or reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil, full of deadly poison we need to be cautious it's so easy just to just to let the tongue go to say the things which lead us to the next thing to say which leads us down a path that is staining to the body speak graciously a couple of questions am i corrupting others with what comes out of my mouth let no corrupting talk come out of our mouths now, of course, this would mean locker room talk and all things like that. But it can mean a lot of other things, too. It can have application far beyond just cursing or some dirty joke or, uh, or off-color humor or something like that. It can, it, can, it can have a lot of application. There's a lot of ways that we can corrupt others. And so let no, no corrupting or unwholesome word come out of our, of our mouths. Secondly, am I being careful to build others up with what I say? Sometimes, it, and this was a, this was a situation that, that we experienced a few years ago. I, I remember there, were, there was some people that we were working with that really got into the mode of thinking they needed to vent. They just needed to vent. And so that was code for gossip and slander, but, but they called it venting, so it was okay and sounded kind of psychological or something. But the idea was that, you know, these are things you just need to get off your chest. And so this is our... Are the, these are the people that we just get these things off our chest with and so I'm going to say this thing and I'm going, to, I'm going to talk this way and I'm going to get these, you know, as if I was, you know, venting my spleen. It's really what we're doing. Am I careful to build others up with what I say? Is what I say gracious toward others? We need to be so careful. Fifth, verse 30. Why is this verse in here, by the way? Verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now, I ask why it's in there because the previous verses were talking about our relationships with one another. The subsequent verses are talking about our relationship with one another and verse 30 is thrown right in the middle there. Verse 30, which tells us to obey the Spirit. Well, it's on purpose. What has the Spirit been doing in Ephesians? He's been creating peace amongst people for whom there had been no peace. Peace with God and peace with one another. And so when we behave in these ways that were talked about in verse 29 or previously, or 31 and following, we are, we are going directly against what the Spirit has worked to accomplish. And so, I don't know that we think about that in those terms. We could, we could speak more generously Uh, more generally, about what it means to grieve the Holy Spirit. But it's put in this paragraph, between these verses, talking about this subject. Let's think about what its application in this context is. Think about what the Spirit of God has been doing amongst the people of God. First, he He has called them out of death into life given them forgiveness and all of these spiritual blessings that we read about in chapter 1 and does so together. So there is peace amongst and between God's people, not just with Him, but between us as well. And when we speak corrupting words or when we speak bitterly or when we speak untruth, when we treat one another the ways Paul is correcting here, we are going directly against the work of the Spirit. We are going directly against what the Spirit of God himself has worked to accomplish. And so a couple of questions. Does the way I talk about other Christians demonstrate that I share the Spirit's concern that we maintain peace between one another? Do I share that concern? Am I using my words to tear down other Christians and destroy the peace that the Spirit has brought between us or am I seeking to build them up and promote that peace? I, bu- I believe that's why verse 30 is put between verse 29 and 31. And that brings us to the final point, practice forgiveness. Look at verses 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, Practice forgiveness. Did you notice verse 31? All of those aspects, bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander, those are all the things that are consistent with the old man, consistent with our old self that we are to put off. Notice they're relational. And bitterness may not show itself in a relationship immediately. It kind of simmers underneath, but it's directed towards someone. It has impact on people around us. And all the way through, It's about relationship. It's about our relationship with one another. And so we are to practice forgiveness. 32, be kind to one another instead. Not like 31. Be kind to one another. Be tenderhearted toward one another. Be forgiving with one another. Practice forgiveness. How is it, how is it that we can treat each other with that kind of tenderness? with that kind of patience? How is it that we can talk about one another, talk to one another, behave towards one another in that kind of a tender-hearted way? Well, first of all, verse 30, by listening to the Spirit, the Spirit wants to build up the body. The Spirit wants to bless and bring peace. But secondly, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. How was it you were brought from that place of death and living in, 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 in sensuality with a calloused heart and a futile mind? How was it you were brought from that place to being in a place where now you are members of the body of Christ with all of the blessings that go with that? How is that accomplished? Jesus himself gave his own life for you. And so that helps us when we treat one another. It helps us to be reminded to, to put off the old self that acts based upon... Uh, that futile thinking and and callous heart put that off be renewed in my mind as i'm reminded of what it is christ has done and then i put on the new self realizing what i have in christ what i've been brought to that i have a new heart that i have uh, his spirit placed within me that that i actually have new desires i have a new peace with god that was never there before i have a new family around me in the body of christ And so when we look at ourselves and we realize I fall short in all of these ways, what do I do? Well, we do what this passage tells us. We put off our old self which belongs to our former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. We are renewed in our The spirit of our minds as we remember that we were once dead and liable to God's wrath but now because of what Christ Himself has done we've been brought to life sealed by His Holy Spirit. He has created us anew in Christ for good works which He prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Our minds are renewed by these truths and then thirdly we put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness and we give all the more care to speaking truthfully. And we pay greater attention to the dangers of anger, especially anger that is allowed to simmer. We begin to see ourselves as someone who can be used by God to meet the needs of others rather than the other way around. We give more thought to how the things we say impact and influence others around us. We eagerly seek to maintain the spiritual bond of unity and peace with other Christians. We give forgiveness freely and quickly and often to others around us. They're in need of it, just like we so often are in need of it. And so, in a moment I'm going to pray for us, and then after I pray, there's going to be a couple down front who would love to uh, pray with you, and Stephen and I will also be down front uh, for a few minutes. as As I read through this passage, it has it has I'm reminded of some talk that, that I've heard, uh, some 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 gossip and things that have been claimed. And I want to give you opportunity, and Stephen wants to give you opportunity that if you've if you've heard startling things, if you've heard uncomfortable things, and you just want to know. Uh, the, the truth about them, um, you know, f- from the horse's mouth, come down and talk to us, because we want to treat one another uh, these ways. We want to be careful with our speech to one another. We don't we don't want to continue in any kind of anger. We want to uh, we want to speak the truth. We want to be generous and giving to one another. We want to be forgiving to one another. We want to be tenderhearted. And so, if there's if there's something that, that you've heard that startled you. This is an opportunity for us to go from that uh, aspect of body life that actually contributes to destruction, to, to to the peace of the body of Christ, and contributes instead as we speak the truth and love to one another to the healing and growth and strength of the body. And so we want to make ourselves available for that. Let me pray for us. Father, we rejoice that you have done such great work in drawing us to Yourself that You have given Your only Son for us. That You have laid upon Him the the penalty due for my sin. It's been punished fully in Him. And I have been brought into a place of peace with You. I get to be called Your child. I get to be a member of the, the Bride of Christ. And that is true for every Christian. And Father, it's our desire that the body of Christ would, would function the way you have designed it, the way your Spirit has, has, has gifted us, that we would speak the truth and love to one another, that we would not listen to gossip, that we would certainly not participate in gossip. And where I have been lax in guarding my tongue or perhaps allowing myself to uh, remain angry I pray that you would forgive me I pray that for each of us we are brothers and sisters in Christ we have this great inheritance in Christ and we have this great inheritance together and so we ask that you would work by your spirit you have worked in such great ways Drawing us to Yourself, giving us one another, giving us Your Word, giving us hope in Christ, giving us Your Spirit within us, giving us a new heart that is responsive to You. You have worked mightily within us, mightily within the body of Christ, and we pray that You would continue to do so. Father, we trust You, and we ask for Your blessing, and we ask for Your help in In minding these things as we move forward, we want to honor you and your spirit in the way we think about one another, speak about one another, and speak to one another. So we pray for your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all so much, and uh, God bless you. You are dismissed.